scripture passage that the four pastors will preach on this morning comes from Mark 9, 1 through 13. It says, And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, he ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen, until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning this rising from the dead what this rising from the dead could mean. Then they asked him, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He said to them, Elijah is indeed coming first to restore all things. How then is it written about the Son of Man, that he is to go through many sufferings and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written about him. You've already heard the scripture read for you from Mark 9, 1 through 13. I invite you, if you'd like to uh, read along as we preach, uh, you can do that. For the past two weeks, our family has been roaming around the Midwest on vacation. We drove over 2,500 miles to historical sites, mostly presidential, something that we have done a few times across the nation As we traveled around the country, I always notice all the churches. When we were in Texas and Oklahoma, the number of churches the size of Costco were in abundance. On the East Coast, they are, of course, more traditional and stately. On this trip, there was a mix of everything from humble to quite grand. Some were beautifully kept up, some were historical, and others had a lot of life happening. On our first day driving, I felt very led by the Holy Spirit to pray for each church as we passed. Calling, pray for your brothers and sisters. Pray for these people who are connected, who are doing my work in my name. Let me tell you, I did a lot of praying. As I looked at each church, there were certain things that would stand out and the prayer would just come. You can tell a lot about a congregation just from the outside. From their signs, the shape of their building, the name, what the grounds look like. These things show what they stand for and value. We passed a chapel named Hope, an apostolic temple, an agape fellowship, a living redeemer. We saw ones with preschools and food pantries and those committed to working with those in recovery, the poor, the lost, the homeless. They were in all languages and denominations 
And most of them showed that they were attempting to give glory to God as they fulfilled the Great Commission, fulfilled the work that he has given them in cities and colleges, in residential neighborhoods, and way out in the corn in the country. God showed me a lot through this exercise, but there's one thing I want to say about it today. The body of Christ is incredibly evident to those who are paying attention. Those who make up the church, of course, we are flawed and we are sinful, but God's work is being made manifest in communities everywhere. It's so clear that Christ is on the move, that his work is being done, and this was just a small sample. And I came away from that command that the Lord gave me in awe of a Savior who calls, who equips his disciples, empowering them to invite others to know him and to trust him, make him known, church. Last week, Pastor Doug talked about Jesus' exhortation that it is in dying to ourselves that we find true life. In this counterintuitive teaching, Jesus is laying out a core truth that he came to give us, that he himself came to live out. That the way of freedom here is not found in holding on to what we have. We do not find our deepest fulfillment in asserting our rights and privileges found on earth. That is the way of death, according to the Lord. Jesus tells us that we are to let go, that we are to acknowledge that God is the giver of all, that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and that is how we find true life. And we give Jesus away. After Jesus says these words, he says, Some of you who are listening right now will not see death before you see the kingdom of God come in power. A few days later, we see the transfiguration and he is changed before their eyes. This is a sacred moment. And we who read this generations later stand in awe of how the Lord gives glimpses of his greatness to those who follow. So let us take a few seconds to imagine what is being witnessed here. Jesus robed in blazing majesty to those who are present beyond anything they have ever seen before. He has kept the promise that he has given. They've just learned, remember, that he is the Messiah. And here he is showing them the culmination of what will come You see, in Mark, we talked about how Jesus is pivoting to the cross. And as he descends into suffering, he points them to what will be, to what always has been, and certainly what their future will be as well. The realm where God dwells is sometimes far from our focus here. We forget. We're so busy and we're bogged down in our troubles. We believe in him, but we also are holding on so tightly sometimes to life here and what we want. The transfiguration shows us that the Savior's word is true, but it also reminds us that we don't worship an itinerant preacher from Galilee. We worship a risen Lord who dwells in inescapable light with a community of saints. This is the life Jesus urges us to hold on to here, that he endured this earth and the pain of the cross so that we would live in power here and in the life to come. As the Lord led his friends to this experience, we also need to understand that he is the king who is moving us forward. The kingdom is not static. 
One day we will all be changed in an instant. And so much of Mark's gospel is meant to give readers the chance to make a choice about Jesus. This is what the church is also called to do. We proclaim the reality of God's life now and also the hope for what he has planned for those who believe. Saving what is here is futile. It is living for the one who shapes all time, who dwells in pure righteousness and perfect love so we might live forever. That is our purpose. This is part of what was shown to me on our trip. God's people are doing immense work through the same power that the disciples witnessed Jesus in his glory, through the same power that raised him from the dead. He is the God who sees, but he is also the one who makes it possible for us to show his glory every day. So let us continue to walk closely with him and let us do what the voice from the cloud said and listen to the sun. This entire scene that we've been talking about this morning, the transfiguration, is quite the dramatic and vivid one. We have clothes that are dazzling white, a voice coming from clouds, and of course the very unexpected presence of Moses and Elijah. Unexpected seems like an understatement, if you ask me. But first glance, you would look at the scene and think this is yet another example of Mark letting us know that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God. While that's true, it seems that there is more there. So we'll start our exploration by looking at our two unexpected guides, Moses and Elijah. So Moses. In particular, let's look back to Moses' life-changing experience that he had on a mountain. After their escape from Egypt, the Israelites began their long journey to the Promised Land. It didn't take long at all before it was very evident that they needed some clear guidance on what it meant to live a life that honors God. So God instructs Moses to bring Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu up to a mountain, and there they wait. A cloud covers the mountain, and after six days, God speaks to Moses and gives him the Ten Commandments. After interacting with God so closely, Moses is left with a face shining with an unparalleled brilliance. The comparison to this story and the one that we heard earlier is quite striking. A lot of major elements seem to line up here. We have something happening after six days. We have three named companions going up a mountain. Something ends up shining, whether it be a body part or clothing. You have God speaking, God appearing in a cloud. So it seems pretty evident that these two stories should be read together. Moses is on the mountain, so we probably should pay attention to him here. The real question is, why is Moses on the mountain? Why are these stories so strongly connected? And what does this have to do with the kingdom of God? I think there's two important lessons we can learn from this. Number one, the kingdom of God is not brand new. This can be very easy to forget, especially in the midst of something that's new to us. The disciples are seeing something they have never seen. Jesus has clothes that are now shining, and they are hearing the voice of God speak to them. It's awe-inspiring and a little bit terrifying. Yet the disciples are forced to remember that God has acted in a very similar way before. It's a reminder 
that this God who is speaking on this mountain is the same God of the Israelites. Moses witnessed the kingdom of God coming with power that day on Mount Sinai, and these disciples are getting to witness the very same thing countless years later. In some ways, this event is old news. Now, these events are very similar, but it's important that they're not identical because we worship a God who does new things. This is the same God working in similar ways, but in a very different context. The kingdom of God is not static and unchanging. So yes, the kingdom of God is not brand new, but it is expressed in new ways that hold tightly to who God is. Number two, the kingdom of God leads us forward. After receiving the covenant, Moses came off the mountain and continued to lead his people. The mountaintop experience propelled the Israelites forward into the promised land. And yes, it took them a long time to get there. And yes, they messed up a lot along the way. But it was that experience on the mountain that ushered them into the promised land. So the momentum they had, the momentum from that mountain, led God's people to freedom. So in this moment with Jesus on the mountain, it's not enough to simply witness that Jesus is the Son of God. The disciples must come off the mountain and continue forward. The kingdom of God doesn't allow us to stay where we are. So when the disciples want to make homes for Jesus and Moses and Elijah, the simple answer is no. That's not the point. So with Moses as an example and reminder we see that this moment on the mountain will usher Jesus forward towards Jerusalem, where he will die. The question for us is then, how will our experience with the living God, the same God who spoke to Moses and Jesus, move us forward? Now, it's a big claim that this moment has such a large impact. But let us remember the words that Jesus spoke at the beginning of this passage. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. The kingdom of God has not simply come, but it has come with power. So we turn now from Moses to Elijah. Elijah appears multiple times in this passage and in convoluted ways. Three questions arise that we will address very briefly. Why does Elijah appear on the mountain with Moses talking to Jesus? Why does discussion of Jesus' resurrection raise questions about Elijah? And what does Elijah's presence in the passage mean for us? So first, why does Elijah appear on the mountain with Moses talking to Jesus? In the Old Testament, Elijah was the second prophet to meet God on Mount Horeb. He is like Moses in getting to encounter God in a powerful way on that mountain. After he successfully turned the hearts of the Israelites away from the Baals and back to the Lord, he had to flee from Jezebel, the queen, who wanted to kill him because he had removed her idols. After traveling to Mount Horeb, he stayed in a cave And the Lord told him to go wait outside because the Lord was going to pass by. There was a strong wind 
an earthquake, and a fire, but the Lord was not in any of them. Then there was a gentle whisper, and God was in the whisper and spoke with Elijah. Like Moses, God showed himself to Elijah as he passed by. And Elijah went down the mountain with confidence and courage to speak and lead God's people forward. Second, why does Jesus' statement that he will raise from among the dead bring up Elijah? The disciples are confused here with Jesus' statement, which is a little strange because a lot of Jews in that time look forward to the general resurrection of all people at the end of time. But Jesus here is claiming that he will raise before that. So is Jesus' resurrection bringing the end when all people will raise? If so, the disciples are probably thinking back to Malachi's promise that before the Lord comes, he will send his messenger who will prepare the way. Elijah will come before that day, but if Elijah has not come, how will Jesus raise from among the dead? Third, what does this mean for us? We are part of a pattern revealed by Moses, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, and the first disciples, and we follow in their footsteps. Both Moses and Elijah proclaimed the good news that the Lord spoke to his people, and both were rejected in some way by their people for doing so. Jesus stands firmly in the tradition of the prophets. He is rejected in his hometown. He is rejected by many in his travels. And he has just told the disciples in chapter 8 that he will suffer and die. When the disciples ask about Elijah, he revises their thinking with questions of his own. Does Elijah really come first to restore all things? Then how is it written that the Son of Man must suffer? So we see, if Jesus must suffer, how could Elijah come as a triumphant prophet? The conclusion is that he cannot. Instead, Elijah must suffer like the Messiah. And Jesus continues with the statement that Elijah already came and suffered many things. We are supposed to recognize John the Baptist as Elijah here. Already at the beginning of Mark, John has been described as the messenger in Malachi. We also walk through the story of John's arrest, imprisonment, and beheading at the hand of Herod Antipas. John was like Moses and Elijah, proclaiming the good news to the people. And he suffered and was killed for it, just like Jesus the Messiah will be. The disciples continue in this tradition, with Peter, James, and John being witnesses to the transfiguration, as they saw God revealed on the mountain, as Jesus is transformed, as they heard God's voice coming from the cloud. They obviously proclaimed what they saw after Jesus' death and resurrection, because we're reading about it today. But their proclamation was only accepted by some, not all. And we see in the book of Acts that they needed courage that they received from encountering God to speak boldly in the face of disagreement and even arrest and persecution. This is our tradition as disciples of Jesus, as we follow them and follow in his ways. We are to encounter God in the various ways that he chooses to reveal himself to us and listen to his voice and what he speaks to us. As we do so, we are to proclaim his good news, understanding that those who hear may not agree, and they may not be pleased with our proclamation. But through our encounter with the Lord, we have the courage to speak his words.
In 2015, I had the opportunity to take a team of our high school students we, to Miami, where we served for a full week there at another church. And then also we got to engage in what Free Methodists call General Conference, which is a once every four years national conference where we come together from all over the nation and delegations from around the world. While we were there, there was a missionary by the name of Phyllis Sorter, and she had been a missionary in Nigeria for a long time. And you might recall that we prayed for her at one time because she had been abducted for 12 days. And it was not largely in the news in the U.S. at that point because there was a lot of negotiations going on behind the scenes. But she was delivered, and there's an amazing story. You can find it online as you search for her. Later on, at the end of that conference, I was sitting in the airport with our youth. We're getting ready to come back to Santa Barbara. I looked across the, the aisle, the big aisle there that runs through the terminal, and I noticed she was sitting there reading a book. And I had never met her before, and I honestly didn't know what to even say at that moment, but I was struck by the fact that here is this lady, unknown to all these people that are around her, reading a book. How often have we sat in a terminal or flying somewhere? We're just sitting next to somebody. And little did they know they were sitting in the presence of somebody who'd been a missionary to Nigeria for decades and had been abducted for 12 days. She was kind of a big deal. Over these few weeks, we've heard Peter declare Jesus as the Messiah. We've heard Jesus plainly teach that the Messiah must suffer, be rejected, die, and rise again. And the disciples and the crowds had heard this, knowing that Jesus was different than most or all of the people that they had ever met. Yet, they could not fully grasp all of who he was. And so in this passage, Jesus takes Peter and James and John on a field trip, and there they get a glimpse that Jesus was not kind of a big deal. He is a and the big deal. And in the church calendar, just as we celebrate Advent and Lent, Trinity Sunday, Pentecost Sunday, Easter Sunday, Christmas Sunday, we also celebrate Transfiguration Sunday. Don't know if you knew that or not, but it's part of the church calendar. And there's no greeting cards out there, so don't go looking. Transfigured literally means the act of metamorphosis, a change of form, luminous from within. And all of church, all of Christendom has realized the importance of this event. And Roman Catholics have celebrated the transfiguration on the second Sunday of Lent. And on the calendar of Holy Days, liturgical churches observe the transfiguration on August 6th. And we who have followed the Revised Common Lectionary in the past and still do, will be celebrating this again on March 3rd, 2019. It's the Sunday, the last Sunday of Epiphany, the, the, the first Sunday before we start Lent. Why right before Lent? The Book of Common Prayer gives us a great statement. It says, God, who before the passion of your only begotten Son revealed his glory upon the holy mountain, grant to us that we, beholding by faith the light of his countenance, 
may be strengthened to bear our cross and be changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. So it is here that Jesus, in the midst of showing great sacrifice, shows us a glimpse of his glorious kingdom. The transfiguration has been termed a temporary event to strengthen faith. Thomas Aquinas said the transfiguration was the greatest miracle. It revealed the hidden divinity of Christ before his passion and death. And this is one of those events that happened to Jesus. Yes, Jesus went up here, and in it we find the mystery of the Trinity, right? Because Jesus is God, but yet this happened to Jesus. And on that time, he intentionally showed the glory of God through Jesus. And as we read earlier, Truly, I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Jesus leads the disciples up to the mountain. He is transfigured before them. His appearance was changed from the inside out. And when he took these three up the mountain, they could not have imagined what they were about to see. They had been looking for his kingdom in the wrong place. They wanted to see a conquering Messiah, and instead Jesus showed them a cross. They wanted to see an extraordinary human who could rescue them. Instead, they saw the very face of God. Over these last weeks, we've been taking a deeper look at the person and call of Jesus on each of us. And we all know that we live in a fallen world where injustice, discouragement, disease, separation, conflict, poverty, and death all seem prevalent, forces us to stare at our own humanity. Jesus calls us to follow him on the road, and it has some smooth spots along the way, but it also has a lot of potholes and road closures. And he calls us to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to let him lead us. And he wants to show us his glory. But are we, like the disciples, maybe looking for it in the wrong place? He may be trying to show us in the victories that we've experienced or will experience in everyday life. He may be trying to show us in an answered prayer. He may be trying to show us in the beauty of living in the Santa Barbara area and more. In the days we are routinely rolling along, a little too consumed with the worries of this world, may we hear the firm and loving voice of Jesus remind us, I don't know if you know this or remember this about me, But I am the beloved of Father God. I am the Lord over all of life. I am the great physician. I am the author of life. 
I am the savior of the world. And I am the king of kings. Walk with me. And you will see the glory of God. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.